Hello and welcome back to the Macroball Podcast. This is episode 11. I am your host, Mackenzie. Thank you for joining. We are recording today on the 10th of April. It's a Sunday. Today was a beautiful day in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, I'm glad to be back in the studio. It's been about three weeks since the last episode. I do apologize to all you loyal listeners who were begging for my return. Um, Here I am. Now, we are winding down the season. Uh, A lot of times with the end of the year, we see a lot of garbage time. We see a lot of blowouts. We see a lot of games that don't mean shit. Uh, I've kind of shut down to a lot of games, although there are a lot of reasons to stay in tune anyway. We have seen some good games. Um, We are heading into the play-in tournament, which begins on the 12th, ends on the 15th. The playoffs begin on the 17th, and that's the best time of the year, of course. There's bound to be some exciting matchups and all that fun stuff. We are going to get to that in the next episode, which will be a playoff preview once everything is set in stone. But until then... I wanted to do an awards podcast for the 2021-2022 season, so that's what we will be doing today. We will be running through all the awards except Executive of the Year, and we will also be doing all rookie, all defense, and all NBA teams. Let's go. It is time to determine the award winners. If I had a vote, I think things would be, the world would be a better place, but I don't, alas, we have to do it through this podcast. Um, but this is who I have for the various awards. I'm going to do coach of the year. So in order, coach of the year, sixth man of the year, most improved player. Uh, we're going to do an all defense and then defensive player of the year. We'll do all rookie and rookie of the year, and we will do all NBA and the most valuable player. Starting with Coach of the Year. This one's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, I've said on a previous episode where I don't think Coach of the Year is a very... uh, It's not an intricate award to break down. Um, A lot of it is based on narrative. A lot of it is based on who the media likes, who's nice to the media in that regard, I should say. Um, Who has the best story, who's sort of come from, let's just say, someone like Monty Williams who a lot of the media members love, and he's beloved across the NBA. He gets a lot of love in that regard, so then he ends up winning Coach of the Year, even though obviously the Suns are the best team in the league by far. I don't think that's because of the coach necessarily. I don't think he deserves as much credit as some of the other candidates for the team being that good. Now, my pick this season would be Taylor Jenkins from the Memphis Grizzlies. It's actually a fairly obvious pick to me. This is a team that's weathered the storm through different injuries. They have several players that you wouldn't consider to be extremely talented uh, by NBA standards, but they managed to win games consistently. John Morant has been out for over 20 games, and the team has still been fantastic. I think it's a credit to the front office for accumulating so many great assets and so many great players on really cheap contracts. Uh, they have one of the cleanest finance sheets, I believe, in the NBA. Um, but they're also well-coached. They have an extremely good strategy game to game they adjust very well Um, they take defense seriously and the pieces fit together 
Um, I think the future couldn't be brighter for this team. And Taylor Jenkins deserves a lot of credit for that. So he'll be winning coach of the year, in my opinion. Um, second would probably have to go to Monty Williams, runner-up, I should say. Uh, Ime Yudoka of the Boston Celtics deserves a lot of credit for turning the team around. However, I can't give him more credit than the previous two, Taylor Jenkins and Monty Williams, because he started the season poorly. The other two have had a sustained, successful season all throughout. Uh, more credit as well to Eric Spolstra. That team has had a crazy amount of injuries. I think most of the players haven't played more than 60 to maybe 65 games, and yet they are the number one seed in the East, which has been very competitive this year, so Spolstra deserves a shout-out. Uh, but like I said, it's not really that close in my opinion. Taylor Jenkins should win the award. Okay, sixth man of the year. This one, again, is actually pretty straightforward. It should go to Tyler Hero of the Miami Heat. He is leading the league in scoring off the bench. Uh, he's played the large, large majority of his games off the bench, so he obviously qualifies. Um, he's had a great bounce back season as well after last year's uh, a bit of a disappointing season after he had a great rookie year. Um, that's what that's kind of the way it goes. You have a good rookie year and then you have expectations and then you don't live up to them and then everyone goes, what's wrong? And then you have a bounce back season and everyone goes, oh my God, look at this guy. Um, I don't think that's fair to Tyler Hero. I mean, he's very young. He's on a tough team to, to compete for minutes with. So Tyler Hero, like I said, deserves a lot of credit, sixth man of the year. And it's not really that close. Although there is an argument for Kevin Love of the Cavaliers. Now, in the beginning of the year, I had done a segment where Kevin Love was in my top 10 worst contracts in the league. I still feel like it's not a great contract, but he has fulfilled a lot of it this year with the way he's played. You have to give him a lot of credit. He's averaging 15 and 8 off the bench, um, really giving the team a boost off the bench when they need it in certain games because that team is young and... Uh, they need that type of presence. So congratulations to Love. I haven't quite dropped you off my, let's just say, top 15 contracts, but you've dropped out of the top 10. So I'll give you some credit there. Finally, a little bit of credit to Montrez Harrell of the Hornets. Uh, he was one of my leading candidates when he was on the Wizards. I don't think it matters where he plays. He continues to be a Energizer Bunny off the bench for every team he plays for. Uh, funny enough, the Hornets have another candidate I considered in Kelly Oubre, Although he's started a few more games, so not to say he doesn't qualify, but I like Harold more as a top three candidate. Okay, and time for the last real uh, lack of nuance award here. Although this one has been a difficult one to break down. Um, I've looked into this quite a bit. Most improved player. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty obvious pick once you really go over things and you have a look around the land. John Morant should probably win this award. He's turned into an MVP candidate, let alone most improved. Uh, he's taken the leap from a star or from an all-star, I should say, to a superstar this year. Uh, I think he's averaging 27 points and obviously leading the Grizzlies to one of the best records in the NBA, if in fact the second best record in the NBA. So John Morant deserves this award hands down to me. And it's a pretty stark jump from him to the next person. But uh, my runner-up would be Jordan Poole of the Warriors. He's turned into a real piece for them. He's going to be hard for them to retain with a contract. In fact, I think someone out there is going to pay him upwards of $20 million a year easily. Uh, it could be some crazy team anyway. Um, but he's a good player. He's really improved. A couple of years ago, he looked kind of like a G League kind of fringe player. 
um, but he's turned into a real piece. He's a legitimate offensive weapon for them. He's filled in as a point guard or a sort of a, a pseudo point guard alongside Draymond Green while Steph Curry has been out. And uh, he's delivered. He's averaging, I think, over 25 points per game since Curry's gone out. So congrats to Poole. Uh, you just happened to improve in the same year as John Morant. So bad luck to you. And finally, uh, the third runner-up, or second runner-up, I should say, would be Desmond Bain. Uh, I originally had him as my winner, um, but John Moran has really pushed himself to the forefront with the way he's played. Now, Desmond Bain has gone from a, a nice piece, kind of like a nice young guy that you, you're not sure what you have. He's turned into a stud. Uh, he's close to 20 points per game. He's one of the best defensive wings in the league. He's strong at 6'5". He defended LeBron really well in a couple of the Grizzlies-Lakers games. Um, he plays with a, an edge, a chip on his shoulder. He's one of the best three-point shooters in the league now. He's a threat to make it, I think it's 44% of the time. So he is a dead eye from downtown. So Desmond Bain, in a normal year, would probably win it. But there are two other stronger candidates ahead of him. Again, it's a bit unlucky. I think a couple other guys that deserve some credit here. Tyrese Maxey of the Sixers. A lot of people would probably pick him to win, uh, although I wouldn't put him again, like, ahead of John Morant. But Tyrese Maxey has turned into the third best player on a team with two superstars in Philadelphia. That's Joel Embiid and James Harden, obviously. But Maxey has turned into a real threat this year. And my last guy, who was a leading candidate as well for a while before the other three or four jumped ahead of him, is Miles Bridges of the Hornets. Uh, he's turned into probably their most important offensive player. Well, definitely their most important offensive player next to LaMelo Ball. Uh, he can make plays off the dribble. He defends multiple positions. He's really an ideal kind of hybrid forward nowadays. Um, he's a super athlete. His alley-oops from LaMelo Ball are just probably the best combination in the league. Uh, and his shooting actually has regressed a little bit, but... I just think he's turned into a real thing, and um, it's been at a faster pace than I expected. I thought he was just going to literally uh, – I probably just made up a word there. I thought he was going to improve at a much slower but linear pace, but he's really turned up the switches this year, so credit to Miles Bridges as well. Okay, it's time for all defense. Uh, now, this one has been the subject of a lot of controversy this year. The argument over who the best defensive player is. Um, that award we will talk about in just a moment. But even arguing the all-defense first and second teams is tough. Um, first of all, measuring defense is not easy. Uh, you can look into it yourself. You can see all the different stats. You can watch the game. You can see who impacts. Like literally someone like Rudy Gobert, who's obviously going to make first team. Um, but someone like Rudy Gobert's impact is palpable. If you watch the game, it's obvious that he changes the defensive scheme. He changes the offensive scheme of the other team from game to game. But he's also, it's tangible what he's doing with statistics as well. Um, he is an incredibly impactful defensive player. But that doesn't make him the best defensive player in the league necessarily. He is a three-time winner of the award. Um, we'll talk about it in a moment. I don't think he should win this year, although there's always an argument for him given his rim protection. And like I said, the way he warps a team's offense to literally be afraid of the paint is something special um, and unique in NBA history, honestly. But Rudy Gobert is first team. That's pretty obvious. The point I'm making is defense is hard to quantify with stats. It does require a lot of actually watching 
the game and seeing how they're playing, how they're switching nowadays with the versatile sort of skill ball, I like to call it, not small ball. But if you're a specialist, like for example, Mark Eaton back in the day, uh, he used to average like four or five blocks a game. He was seven foot four, played for the Jazz. He wouldn't last very long in today's NBA. He'd get played off the floor in five, 10 minutes. Whereas nowadays you do kind of need to play both ends. If you're a specialist, it's going to be hard for you to stay on the floor, or if at least if you're not impacting the game in multiple ways. So with defense, um, I think being a specialist isn't ideal anymore. Uh, the guys that are on this list, one of them in particular is quite a specialist. In fact, he's one of the most incredible defensive players I've ever seen. Um, but his offensive game is a bit lacking, although it is a testament to how good his defensive it, his defense is that he's probably going to end up earning like a $20 million contract or more uh, from some team out there. So we'll go through the first team. At, at the guards, I have Marcus Smart, who is a constant agent of chaos for the Celtics, uh, who just on the Celtics quickly have had one of the most incredible defensive strategies this year um, they are really really tough to play mostly because they play with so much energy it's almost like everybody is given a shot of adrenaline before every game um, and I think Marcus Smart leads the pack in that regard he has to be considered first team uh, he can defend any position virtually uh, very effectively save for a couple guys like I wouldn't want him to defend Joel Embiid for example but who else are you going to ask to defend him it doesn't matter Joel Embiid's a bucket but anyway Marcus Smart, first team, all defense for a guard. The other one is Matisse Thibel of the 76ers. Now, this is who I was talking about before as an incredible defensive player. He is a transcendent defensive talent on the perimeter. I've never seen somebody with such quick recovery, although Kawhi does come to mind and Scottie Pippen. But Thibel is in that conversation in terms of athleticism, in terms of anticipation, uh, the way he jumps in the passing lanes, the way he deflects passes uh, on the ball, off the ball, his awareness, his quickness to jump and block jump shots, as well as from behind if, if the guy gets past him, which isn't that common. Um, but he's unbelievable to watch. He's just fun to watch in general on defense. Um, he reminds me a bit of a smaller kind of Ben Wallace in that he's very exciting uh, and he actually makes defense look like it's fun to play. Next in the front court, I had Michael Bridges, kind of a pretty obvious pick. Uh, he's done some campaigning recently to win the award. Uh, he's put up some interesting arguments about how it's crazy that bigs win, you know, a, a large majority of the time. Bigs win the award, um, whereas perimeter defense deserves more credit. I think that's fair. It does deserve more credit. Um, but as Joel Embiid did put very eloquently on the JJ Redick podcast, big men often anchor defenses uh, in the, in with respect to Rudy Gobert, Joel Embiid, Giannis, uh, Brooke Lopez for, for the Bucks more commonly, but obviously he's been out this year. But the big man and Bam Adebayo is another front court guy who's going to make first team. The big men anchor the defense. They communicate everything. Obviously, there are guards that are communicating as well, but Big men have the toughest job in general in the NBA in today's like landscape. So I don't think big men deserve less credit. I just think wings and guards deserve more credit, though it's still going to be tough to win the award when you have to compete with players like Bam Adebayo. Uh, after Giannis, I would say Adebayo is probably the most versatile defensive player in the league. Uh, if you watch him this year, he's had an unbelievable season. Um, he's played just under 60 games, so I think he meets the threshold 
which I, I would sit around 50% games played this year, to be fair. Um, and that's why I don't have Draymond Green, unfortunately. But Bam Adebayo has been incredible. Uh, just a special player on defense. There aren't too many players like him that can switch on to anybody. And there is, it's not happening for that offensive player, save for the Kevin Durant's and the, you know, even Giannis. Like, he's not going to stop Giannis, but he makes life difficult for every single player he's defending. And he's a great weak side defender as well. So the help defense from Bam, in addition to on ball and switching, is special. Hence why he's first team. And then finally, uh, I don't think he need mu needs much explanation or introduction, really. Rudy Gobert. He's still the premier rim protector in the NBA. He changes the way teams play offense. Um, it's hard to game plan against him. I mean, you have to hit a lot of shots and you have to kind of get hot like the Clippers did last year in the playoffs. But uh, in general, the Jazz are... They, they fall apart without Rudy Gobert. Um, and that speaks to how impactful he is. Second team in the backcourt, I have Chris Paul, who has been as elite as ever on defense. Um... Don't even look at the stats, which are good for him as well, but just watch the way he plays. Watch how he uses his mind to step into the right places, to take charges, to strip the ball from shaky ball handlers, to stay in front of guys, to use his leverage in the post. He's always often posted up by larger players and he never gives an inch. Um, he's an incredible player, pound for pound, one of the best defensive players of all time. He is second team this year. Um, with him in the backcourt, I have DeJounte Murray of the Spurs. He's led the league in steals and total deflections this year. Um, he's been averaging close to a triple-double this year as well. So his offense is one thing, but his defense is really special. Uh, he's like a 6'5", very versatile defensive player. Sort of like a, not quite as athletic, but very similar to Matisse Thybul in that he's long, athletic, quick, sharp on defense. Um, and you can see he led the league in steals and total deflections. So that counts for something. Uh, counts for my second team All-NBA in the backcourt for defense. Now in the front court, uh, this is where things get a bit clogged. They get a bit uh, spicy, if I would say so myself. Jaron Jackson Jr. has to make it to me. He's established himself as a premier interior defender. He can switch on to most smaller players without losing much. Not quite to the level of Giannis or to uh, Bam Adebayo, but very similar. Uh, he's led the league in shot blocking this year. That has to count for something. Um, and if you watch him, you see he has the potential to be the defensive player of the year in the next few seasons, if not beyond. Uh, but he deserves at least second team this year. That would be alongside Giannis. As I mentioned, he's probably the most adaptable and versatile defensive player in the league. He is a great help side defender. Um, I wouldn't say he's the best post defender, but he's very good at that as well. And he's had to adapt. When I say adaptable, he's had to become kind of the de facto center for the Bucks with Brooke Lopez being out. So he's filled in admirably. The team hasn't suffered too much defensively. They're a very strong team and obviously a contender for that reason. So Giannis deserves credit, second team All-NBA. And finally, Robert Williams, Time Lord of the Boston Celtics. Um, again, very similar to Bam Adebayo, very active all over the court. Um, they ask him to do a lot of corner three defense. Uh, meanwhile, Al Horford kind of guards the big man. But Robert Williams' shot blocking and athleticism are pretty special in the NBA where there are a lot of special athletes. He stands out and his defense is very, very special for a team 
that needs that type of versatility and that type of activity. Um, I kind of look at him sometimes like a big man version of Marcus Smart in that he is a agent of chaos um, and he and Smart are kind of like a tag team duo, big and small. Uh, they they just create havoc on defense for the Celtics, among other players there. Um, but he deserves credit for second team All-NBA. If you have a chance, you should just go watch his defensive highlights. It's pretty incredible stuff. Um, he's really turned into a great player for them. Okay, defensive player of the year. So we've been over the All-Defense teams. You could probably guess a few of the top three. Um, starting in order from three to one, I had Michael Bridges of the Suns, um, probably the best perimeter defender in the league, all things considered on the ball, off the ball. He is fantastic. Um, although I just didn't feel like he made the same impact as number two, Rudy Gobert of the jazz, obviously the noted paint defensive presence. Um, one of the best shot blockers of all time. I think he hasn't been as, let's just say, superlative this year as compared to previous seasons, but I think he is still worthy of a top three and obviously number two on my list. Uh, but that's behind none other than Bam Adebayo. I have him as Defensive Player of the Year. And this is because when you watch the Heat, when you watch Bam in particular play defense, you can find a lot of clips on the internet where he is like a... Swiss Army Knife. It's unbelievable to watch him play defense. It's really one of one, which is his nickname. Um, and he uh, he transcends positions. He transcends quickness of players. Like His defensive acumen is pretty much unmatched to me in the modern NBA. And uh, the Heat have a special player, particularly on defense, but also his offense as well. Uh, but given that he is... As good as he is on defense, even though he missed a handful of games, I have him as Defensive Player of the Year for 2022. Okay, now it's time for usually what's my favorite argument or favorite debate of every season is the All-Rookies and Rookie of the Year will follow. Um, this year, my favorite has been the MVP conversation in All-NBA, but it's still been fantastic, uh, all considered with the Rookies. So my first team, I have Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, Franz Wagner of the Magic, Cade Cunningham, and Josh Giddy of the Thunder. So I feel like the top three who are top three in the Rookie of the Year race don't really need a lot of explanation. Mobley, Barnes, Cunningham, not in that order. Um, those three kind of would be considered for, you know, let's say there was a fourth team all NBA or fifth team, like they'd get consideration for it because they've been that good this year. Um, particularly Cade Cunningham recently in the, in, I would say in the second half of the year, he's really picked it up. Uh, Barnes has been steady all season. I haven't really seen him go through any slumps and I've followed the Raptors pretty closely. Uh, Mobley, I feel like has tailed off a little bit, uh, but that's no, not really a slight necessarily on the overall season he's had. Um, and then when it comes to Wagner and Giddy, I think Giddy would have been higher on my list, uh, as we'll see in Rookie of the Year, but he got injured. I think he's played about 50 games, roughly 50 to 60 games. So that has to be taken into consideration, but he was one of the best playmaking, uh, playmaking rookies, I should say, in this class. Uh, him and Barnes and Cunningham have a pretty interesting knack for 
finding open guys and also passing players open, if that makes sense. Like they'll see the play ahead of time and they'll make the pass before the player actually knows that they're open. It's really incredible to watch. If you, if you break down film with Josh Giddy, you'll see what I mean. Uh, second team, I have Alperin Sengun from the Rockets, Herb Jones from the Pelicans, a defensive nightmare, uh, Chris Duarte from the Pacers, Jalen Green from the Rockets, and Ayo Dusunmu from the Bulls. So the two names that stand out here to me are Jones and Dusunmu. Dusunmu I hadn't heard of prior to this season, didn't watch much college last year admittedly, uh, but he's come in and he's contributed massively to a successful Bulls season. Uh, given all the injuries, he's really stepped in and played a lot of different roles. He's worn a lot of different hats this year, so it's impressive to see what he's capable of doing given whatever he's asked. Um, Herb Jones has drawn a lot of comparisons to Kawhi Leonard, a lot of comparisons to Paul George defensively. Um, he's going to be a stud in the near future, probably an all-defensive type of guy. And his offense isn't too bad either, uh, but he's mostly known for his defensive presence. Uh, but he's he was good enough on that end to make second team All-NBA. He's also contributed and started for this Pelicans team a lot, so congrats to him. Sengun has a chance to be one of the best centers in the league. Um, if you ever watch him play, it's very much like he has a, a feel for the game that's very natural. And it's interesting, too, because he's such a young player. Um, but he's got a bright future, and the Rockets have a bright future with him and Green. Um, I'm not a massive fan of Kevin Porter Jr., but uh, I'm sure they'll find their way with more pieces as they collect them. Chris Duarte of the Pacers, also a special shout-out. Um, he has flown under the radar, but just watching him score the ball, it's like he's been in the league for 10 years already. It's pretty incredible stuff. So like I'm saying, just to reiterate, this class is unreal. Um, and I don't know how we can top it in the next few years. We'll see. So Rookie of the Year. Um... There are, like I was saying, there's a few names here that didn't make my top three. Uh, we've already talked about Giddy, uh, Franz Wagner, Jalen Green, uh, Chris Duarte, Herb Jones, Alperin Sengun, Ayo Dusunmu. I also want to give a special shout out to Jonathan Kaminga, who you could argue has the highest ceiling of any of these players in terms of athleticism and in terms of talent potential. Uh, he and Barnes would be up there for me. And then Joshua Primo of the Spurs, the youngest player in the NBA. I can't really put my finger on why he's so good, but he's very shifty. He's kind of like a quicker... He reminds me a bit of SGA, except he plays at a quicker pace. But he's very crafty, and he gets to where he wants to go. And he plays the game at his own pace, even as such a young player. It's really impressive to watch. Uh, Davion Mitchell, as well, from the Kings, deserves a special shout-out. Um, since the trade for... Uh, well, sending Halliburton to the Kings... Uh, sorry, to the Pacers. It's freed up more time for him to play on the Kings. Mitchell, that is. And uh, he's really been playing well in the second half of the year overall. So, moving to the top three. At number three, I actually have Evan Mobley here. Now, pre-draft, I wasn't really sure what to expect out of his super thin, lanky, sort of big man frame. He had surprising quickness and agility. I think I saw a lot of sort of Ralph Sampson in him. I don't know if a lot of you might know that name, but uh, if you watch him and then you compare to Ralph Sampson there's a lot of agility for someone who's tall um, kind of has a bit of guard skills but I didn't really know what to make of it because I've seen a lot of these types of players come in and fail uh, and not even just in a rookie season but over time but Mobley has been the complete opposite he has been as NBA ready as you could possibly ask um, 
I can see multiple All-Stars in his future, obviously. Potentially Defensive Player of the Year down the track. I think he's already one of the better defensive big men in the league uh, with his ability to switch, his ability to cover ground as a seven-footer. And sometimes one of his signature plays is to let the guard or the, the person with the ball drive past him, and then he just blocks the shot from behind. It's really impressive. Um, he's also a mismatch offensively. He has a nice touch on his jumper. Uh, he shows Flash's good finishing ability in general. He has a nice hook shot for a thinner big man. So the thing is, like, the argument for Mobley is that he has contributed to a Cavs team that's been so successful kind of out of nowhere. Um, I think that's fair. I, I think he had a strong argument for most of the year. Uh, but what, like I was saying, in the last 15 games or so, I think his performance has tailed off. Uh, and then the next two players I'm going to talk about have ascended even further. They've gotten better. So number two, this might be controversial at this stage, is Cade Cunningham. Uh, he's the number one pick in the draft. He's been absolutely unbelievable this year for a pretty mediocre to subpar Pistons team. I, I legitimately expect Cunningham to be in the running for the All-Star game next year, especially the way he's shouldered a massive amount of scoring and playmaking burden in Detroit. I think coach Dwayne Casey is asking him to do a lot and he hasn't he's risen to the challenge as much as possible he already has an advanced understanding of several uh, important concepts including pick and rolls of course very basic stuff for a point guard but he gets it to level three level four level five uh, his change of pace in the half court and in transition is incredible he makes subtle moves with his feet well with his footwork to bait defenders one way and then he goes a different direction either with a crossover a spin move um, he knows how to leverage a, a defender's momentum as he's driving to kind of draw fouls. There's a lot of subtlety to his game. Um, there's a really good video actually on YouTube. I think it was Thinking Basketball put together the complexity of Cade Cunningham. It's really worth watching. He's a great player uh, and he has a bright future. I think for someone that's 20 years old, uh, someone who's already reading the defense at this high level, it just bodes really well for them. I, I can see a lot of like a Luka Doncic light, but I also think he has a chance to create his own lane where we start seeing players, future players, labeled as being the next Cade Cunningham. And for me, an underrated part of Cunningham's um, aura, I guess you could say, is his marketability. You think he has a great name and he has a very high confidence level. So I think he'll become one of the faces of the league in a very short time and the NBA is going to push for that anyway. And then the last part of this, the, the last part of his game that I really like is that while he's probably most effective as a ball dominant, um, I think the, the hot term these days is heliocentric basketball player, I think he's also able to play off the ball really well and defer to teammates as needed. Like if the Pistons managed to bring in somebody else who, let's just say was more alpha than him, uh, even though Cunningham is fairly alpha, I think he would be able to defer to them and still be effective. Um, of course, like I said, it may not be the ideal situation for him as he is so good with the ball, but it speaks to his versatility. He's a good shooter. It's going to improve. Um, I just see nothing but green lights for Cade Cunningham. Um, and yet, it's still not number one. And obviously, we can probably guess who that is. That would be the Toronto Raptors forward slash guard slash do whatever you need to do. Scotty Barnes. Man, what a season. Um, honestly, I have an inherent Raptors bias that I have tried to put aside for this. But Barnes has just been too good to ignore and too good to not mention him as the number one. 
I think in most draft classes, Kate Cunningham would probably be the winner here. Uh, but Scotty has really stood out to me as a keystone contributor to one of the great overachieving seasons uh, by the Toronto Raptors. I feel I've said before that Barnes is being underutilized uh, in reality. Like, it's not even a diss to the Raptors coaching staff. It's just a product of their roster makeup and the natural pecking order with rookies on most teams. Like, most rookies don't get handed the keys, particularly this type of Raptors team where there's there is a veteran presence. You have a head coach like Nick Nurse who's predicated on winning um, and his intent is to win every game. And yet, Barnes is still productive. They don't run a lot of plays for him. Um, it's really incredible. Like the other day, the other week, I should say, he had a game against the Lakers. He had 31 points, 17 boards, six assists. He was running the show. Like it, it was the Scotty Barnes show. Um, that was the same game where Westbrook hit that absurd three-pointer to tie the game. The Raptors ended up losing. Um, but it was really a Barnes coming out party after a, a pretty long season of, of highlights and of impressive play from him. I just think Scotty Barnes is going to eat in due time. He has to pay his rookie duties. But we're talking about a 20-year-old rookie who already understands so many subtle aspects of the game while often being asked to guard both big men and wings and point guards, uh, switching many times within a given game, affecting disrupting i should say everything on an, a team's offense and he's also posting up on offense in, in terms of mismatches he'll take those he's got a nice hook shot he has an improving jump shot after they said he couldn't shoot at all if i remember correctly they labeled him as a zero level scorer which is kind of absurd looking back because he's certainly more than that and he also runs the point to set up his teammates like he is he is a well-developed prospect at 20 years old his versatility is truly special and it can't be ignored. And that's why he is my choice for the 2022 Rookie of the Year. Okay, it's time for the All-NBA. Now, in my opinion, the All-NBA teams, first of all, should not be position-based whatsoever. Going forward, I really hope that the NBA abolishes this nonsense. Um, I have seen some interesting arguments, like we'll start with Bill Simmons, who suggested that you have one guard position the next position is guard slash forward, then you can have a forward position, then you can have a forward slash center, and then you can have a center. I'm not against this idea because it allows for a lot more flexibility. Um, honestly, I wouldn't mind just seeing them go to just having the 15 best players, for example, uh, like a 1 through 15 ranking. That's perfectly fine. At the end of the day, we're trying to categorize who the best players were. To me, that's what the All-NBA teams are. Uh, and I've heard the argument come up where these All-NBA teams need positions, and it's because it's a team, and teams need to resemble, the All-NBA groups need to resemble a team as much as possible. I just think this is silly. The NBA has moved towards non-positional basketball anyway. We have a lot of guys, like Nikola Jokic isn't a center necessarily, he's a point guard, but he plays center, and he plays point guard, and he probably plays positions in between there. Like, it, it doesn't really matter he's an extreme example but there are a lot of players in the nba where you're not really sure what he is therefore why are we sticking to these old school positions like we need to evolve with the game and accolades need to evolve at the same pace so worst case i honestly think they should just remove the center position and then you can just have three front court spots and then two back court spots um that way you know Jokic and bead Giannis, they should all make this the same first team i don't have them on the same first team because of the positions i'm just sticking to the way it is um but it's not a perfect science 
Anyway, the argument is tiring. Let's just get back to our regularly scheduled programming, shall we? So here are my 2022 All-NBA teams. First team, uh, this one's really easy, actually. Devin Booker, Luka Doncic, Jason Tatum, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Nikola Jokic. Now, I'm open to the discussion about Devin Booker versus John Morant or even Luka Doncic, um, but one of those three are easily first team. It's not even close. Uh, Tatum was probably the best smaller forward this year. Uh, Giannis was the best forward overall by far. He was dominant as usual and an MVP candidate. Jokic over Embiid, of course. I mean, we'll get into it shortly, but Jokic has had one of the best seasons I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not even talking about stats, although I will go into that as well. Um, but yeah, that's a pretty easy first team. Now, second team is where things get a little bit spicy. So in the backcourt, I have Chris Paul and John Morant. Now, I have seen some arguments for Stephen Curry to make second team. I think Curry's had one of the worst seasons of his career, at least in the last, we'll say in the last uh, seven years, roughly. It's been a bit of a down season. Uh, he spent a good chunk of the season chasing after the record for threes, which, look, I'm not going to necessarily hold that part against him, but I am going to hold against him that his percentages have gone way down. He's not the same efficient Stephen Curry that we've come to expect. And I, I mean, he's still going to make, he's on my third team, but he can't be second team. I'm sorry. So Chris Paul, John Morant uh, in the backcourt. And then in the front court, I've put DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Durant. Now, a lot of people might argue that Durant hasn't played enough games. This is one of those seasons where the players that have played over 70 games are an outlier. Um, I could name you a handful of players that have, such as Devin Booker, Jason Tatum, Nikola Jokic. These guys have been healthy all year. They've missed a handful of games at best, uh, at worst, I mean. And so DeMar is another one of those guys that has played a lot of games. But Durant, I can't penalize him for missing X amount of games. He's played enough to where in those games, his performance is top notch. I can't put him ahead of Tatum for that same reason, but he has to make second team. It's Kevin Durant. Like, what, what else do you want me to say? Uh, and then finally, at center, of course, Joel Embiid. Uh, there is going to be a debate had probably all over NBA Twitter, probably on ESPN First Take, probably on First Things First, about how Joel Embiid should or shouldn't be on the first team. He should be voted in as a forward. Uh, the NBA asks voters to vote for players where they play the position most commonly. Joel Embiid obviously plays center most commonly. In fact, he hasn't logged a single minute at forward, so this is where... The NBA is trying to play nice and provide that option, but he never plays forward, so I don't really understand what they're playing at. Um, this is just the, the weird nature of the all-NBA teams these days. Um, we all kind of have to deal with it. Third team uh, in the backcourt, Trey Young, undeniably fantastic season. The team has greatly underachieved. In fact, they're probably the most disappointing team in the East, uh, next to the Knicks, of course. But Trey Young has been special. Uh, I mean, he's close to leading the league in scoring and assists, and he is a juggernaut offensively. His defense will, it seems like, will always leave a lot to be desired, whether that's because of effort, because of his height and size in general. He's pretty thin uh, and just small, but I don't know how you can deny him an all-NBA team considering he has been a dominant backcourt player. As I said, uh, Curry takes the other backcourt position, and then I've had... Uh, I've had to put LeBron in the third team because despite everything that's happened with the Lakers, 
And as we know, a lot has happened. It's been one roller coaster of a season for sure. He has been fantastic. He nearly led the league in scoring. He had to play center a lot of the time. Whether or not you want to argue if he played center effectively is a different story, but they're talking about the second best player of all time, and he just nearly led the league in scoring at age 37. Uh, he puts up numbers every game. I don't see how you can deny him. He is by far one of the best forwards in the league still, um, despite team record, despite even... One thing that held me back from putting him on second team was there were certain games where he was kind of giving up on defense um, and he wasn't running back. And it was kind of like the checkout games where the other team is running them out of the gym and LeBron's like, all right, I'm just going to chill out here and we're going to get ready for the next game, essentially. Um, get the ice bags ready. But LeBron, look, if you want to argue that anyone has been a better forward than him this year, there's probably a handful of names at best. I don't see anyone below him that should have been ahead of him. So uh, that's where I have to give him that spot. And the other forward spot goes to Pascal Siakam, Spicy P of the Raptors. Man, I had my doubts about him. Um, he had a pretty up and down year or last couple years, actually. Um, I mean, he won most improved. And then he started out the year. He was an all-star starter in 2020. And then the the obviously the pandemic happened. And uh, I remember he showed up for the bubble. He wasn't in shape. It was like he hadn't touched a basketball for a while, which, again, hard to hold that against him. Um, but it didn't look great. And then last year, there were there was a lot of skepticism around how he played. He's bounced back in a big way this year. Even after missing like 5-10 games to open the season, uh, he's been tremendous. And he's a big reason why, if not the biggest reason, why the Raptors are the fifth seed in the East. So congrats to Pascal. Um and then the final spot at the center position, I was a bit torn between Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert for his uh, Gobert for his impact. But Towns has had an undeniably great season. Um, it's good to see because I knew the talent was there. A lot of people will always hold against him that he had a lot of losing seasons in Minnesota. I've heard the same argument for Zach Levine in, in Chicago. I've had this same argument with people about Devin Booker in Phoenix. Just because a great player is on a bad team, it doesn't make them not a good player. Like it, it, that shouldn't be held against them when, you know, you have to deal with the likes of Andrew Wiggins as your as your Robin to your Batman. Like, I don't see where that argument ever came from. It doesn't really make sense. If you watch the games, you can tell that Towns was very talented, and this year he's got a good supporting cast. He's had a great season. It deserves to be noted and rewarded. So here you go. Now, it's time we close this out with the MVP talk. What a season. Let me start there. And what a fantastic trio of players sitting at the top of the pile. Uh, if you remember in the beginning of the year, Stephen Curry was leading the pack. Kevin Durant was number two. Those two were kind of the lead dogs for a while. We had a few other guys sitting there just below the surface. Um, and those two got injured and they just started playing less well I guess you could say they start stop playing as well and uh, the other guys started to catch up to them and now those guys are out of the race and the the big three as we'll call it have lapped everybody else to my memory this is the closest race since the 2008 season when Kobe Bryant Chris Paul LeBron James and Kevin Garnett all had legitimate cases as the MVP I might be forgetting another season but that one really stands out to me um 
for the record, Chris Paul should have won that season, but that's another argument for another day. Uh, it's hard to say Kobe Bryant should have never won an MVP in that regard. Uh, but the issue at hand here is we're trying to definitively state or people are trying to definitively state who is the cream of the crop and it's admittedly not easy at all. Uh, I have heard and seen multiple reputable sources discussing this MVP race with an argument along the following lines. So because the race is extremely close, the award is going to be determined by narrative plus a little bit of voter fatigue which to me, if I read into that, means that Embiid has an upper hand as he's the only non-winner uh, of the top three candidates. So Joel Embiid would have a narrative upper hand, we'll call it, because he's never won before. And it's like, okay, let's give this guy his flowers and uh, let's get on with it. Now, this argument's obviously flawed, but the thing is there's no real criteria for MVP. It's never set out by the NBA and uh, the NBA would do that on purpose anyway. They want this discussion. They want things to... They want to drive... They want to have this discussion be vague or be open to interpretation. They don't want things to be crystal clear. Otherwise, it wouldn't be as exciting. It wouldn't draw as much clickbait. So, in an MVP race like this one, this argument is bound to happen. Uh, I think we can all agree that these three players are the most important on their team by far. And all three players are basically having the best seasons of their career. So that's what makes it really hard, uh, among other things. However, I am here to tell you that I can identify a few items that will clearly put one candidate ahead of the other two. So we start with number three, Joel Embiid. Now, what were the storylines and narratives? Let's go through this a bit. He's playing through the quote-unquote Ben Simmons situation. Uh, obviously... For many years, we've seen the Simmons and Bede thing flame out in the playoffs, and the argument has been, it's just not going to work. And at one point in time, I will admit, I was on the Ben Simmons side of the argument, because I felt like Embiid couldn't stay healthy, and I felt like if you built a team around Simmons, who's fully engaged, uh, has shooting around him, is able to run basically a point center spot as the leader of the team, I think that team is destined to win and win big. Um, I didn't believe in Embiid in terms of health, but since they have split ways, or since at least Ben Simmons has started to sit out at the beginning of the offseason, uh, I mean, look, Embiid has been unleashed to an incredible degree. Uh, he was last year's MVP runner-up, and he's even better this year. He's having a historically good season for any position, but especially for centers. So the case is that he's playing even better than he was last year as the runner-up, He's having the best year of his career. He's been relatively healthy. Uh, he's led the Sixers to a top four seed. And look, his stats are phenomenal across the board. We'll just walk through this a bit. He's about to win the scoring title for the first time in his career. Barring some sort of 60-point-plus game from Giannis, that is his to win. Or his that's his scoring title. He's sixth in rebounds per game. He's ninth in blocks per game. He's third in value over replacement player, or VORP. He's third in win shares. He's third in PER. Embiid is the most unstoppable offensive player in the NBA right now. He demands a double team every single night or else the opponent is in for a bad night. Now, before James Harden showed up, Embiid was playing a fair amount of point center, which I will admit was terrifying for different reasons. Terrifying for the opponent because good luck stopping that, but also terrifying if you're a fan uh, or even someone who I'm not necessarily a Sixers fan, 
but I don't want to see Embiid get hurt. And he's, if anybody has a penchant for getting hurt, it's him. Anthony Davis comes to mind as well. Um, but I'm just not sure that someone with his Embiid's history of lower body injuries, we'll call it, should be trying to run the point and make shifty moves all over the court like he does, Euro stepping and stopping on a dime for pull up jumpers. I'm not an NBA health expert, but I just think it puts too much strain on his lower body. So it's good that Harden showed up to sort of weather that a little bit and keep it in the half court. Um, but nonetheless, you have to give him credit. Embiid was doing some incredible things this year. Now, at number two, I had Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, the storyline or the narratives are he's the defending NBA Finals MVP. Uh, he doesn't seem to have lost a step this year. He's playing as well as he ever has. He has the Bucks in the second seed uh, and playing really well. He's still an ultra-efficient offensive weapon that facilitates a very good Bucks offense. In fact, one of the best offenses in the league for multiple years now. He's filled in for Brooke Lopez's injury uh, absence as the de facto center, which we talked about before, which is very impressive. I mean, Brooke Lopez is no slouch. He was a big reason why the Bucks had one of the best defenses in the league in terms of contesting shots in the paint and protecting the rim. Uh, so Giannis picking up that slack is nothing to sneeze at. Now the case, as is pretty standard with these candidates, his stats are fantastic. He's right behind Joel Embiid for the leading scorer mantle with 29.9 points per game. He's fifth in rebounds per game. He's 18th in assists. He's 11th in blocks. He's 12th in true shooting percentage. He's second in PER, or player efficiency rating, with 32.1, which would be the highest number in NBA history. And for what it's worth, he holds the current record from a couple seasons ago. Uh, Giannis is second in VORP with 7.4. Uh, he is second in win shares with 13. And... Like I said, his stats across the board are phenomenal. Again, very hard to argue with these cases. But we come to Nikola Jokic. And look, the defending MVP has gotten better, including statistically, and a greatly improved defensive impact as well. He's widely considered one of the best conditioned players in the league, and he continues to get better in that regard as well as every other part of his game. He has not declined is the big thing here. And it's hard to believe he's been better than last season when he was historically good. He is a rock for the Nuggets. He has been there all season. He's missed a handful of games. He's just missed seven total, actually. And he's kept the Nuggets afloat in a brutal Western Conference playoff race. Now, here's the case for Nikola Jokic. I've kept track of this all season. Uh, and this is just one part of the argument, but I thought this was interesting. On the NBA.com MVP ladder... Jokic has been no lower than fourth place since the second week of the season, and he's been no lower than third place since week 10. And we're we're entering about week 21 or 22. Uh, he's been at least third for 10 plus weeks. Okay. Now, obviously, the ladder is a bit flawed. Sometimes I look at the ladder and I wonder if the writer or the editor who put in the who submitted the ladder has actually changed anything except they just shift a guy one spot or another it seems like it's pretty standard so we move further the 538.com raptors system uh, which is a basically a statistical algorithm that determines a player's impact on the game it's a pretty unique algorithm 
Jokic is far away ahead of everyone in each category, except for defensive Raptor, where he sits only behind Rudy Gobert. Um, it's pretty incredible. Like Jokic is drawing that much attention on a Raptor system that is well thought out. Um, there are a couple flaws with it that I've seen where it's a little bit weighted towards the other players on the team, but at the same time, Jokic hasn't had a terrific roster around him. He's had a good, like he's had good teammates, but not to the same level as his uh, competitors here. So that makes it even more impressive. And then finally, on the basketball reference MVP tracker, Jokic has had a near 50% chance of winning the award all season, which is super impressive considering the field he's competing against. He's never dropped below 40% even, even with considering Embiid is there, Giannis is there, Devin Booker's been in the conversation, Jason Tatum, DeMar DeRozan, Jokic running away with the award. It's unbelievable. So we move to the other statistics here. Jokic is currently sixth in points per game. He's second in rebounds. In fact, he's first in defensive rebounds by nearly 100 rebounds, which is pretty incredible. He's eighth in assists. He's 13th in steals. And I mentioned earlier how Giannis was going to finish with the best PER of all time. It's actually a lie. Jokic would finish with the best PER ahead of that with 32.9. Um, it's just unbelievable. Like he's better than the best team, the best season of all time, which is also happening at the same time. It's unbelievable. Uh, Jokic is fifth in true shooting percentage. Just for clarity, neither Giannis or Embiid are in the top 20. Um, Jokic is first in VORP with 9.8. He's first in win shares with 15.4. But one stat that really stood out to me here, and this is one of my favorites about the Jokic or for Jokic in the argument is usage percentage. So for those unfamiliar, this is defined by NBA.com slash stats as a quote, an estimate of the percentage of team plays used by a player while they were on the floor. So for context, the highest usage rate in NBA history, you can probably guess, was Russell Westbrook in 2017 when he won MVP uh, with 41.65%, which is an objectively insane number, like just absurd. Uh, and so circling back to this season, in first place is Luka Doncic with 37.4, which would be the eighth highest number percentage-wise in NBA history. Embiid is second this year by a hair with 37.3, which would be the ninth highest number in NBA history. Giannis is third with 34.9, which would be the 36th highest usage rate in NBA history. And this is where things get crazy. Jokic is 10th this year. He's only 10th in usage percentage, 31.9, which would rank as the 130th highest 130th highest percentage of usage in NBA history. 130th. This speaks to Jokic's efficiency as an offensive facilitator. He's putting up better overall numbers across the board than the other candidates while actually holding on to the ball less. Simply put, Jokic is a basketball supercomputer and he should be the 2022 MVP hands down. Uh -huh. Oh, 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 oh,